I want you to put your finger in Psalm 51 or your ribbon marker or whatever you choose to mark your place with and hold it. Turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. We're going to read a portion out of 2 Samuel 11, out of 2 Samuel 12, and then we will read Psalm 51 in its entirety. 2 Samuel 11. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Of course, follows then the, the tragic story of how David had Uriah set up and he was killed so that it looked as if he were simply killed in battle. Yet he, David himself, was the instrument of Uriah's death. So we'll go down to verse 14 and it says, And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. <clears throat> this, of course, takes place. Then we want to see in verse 25, Then David said unto the messenger, this was the messenger that brought him news, that Uriah was dead, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. 
And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Then follows the prophet giving very clear word from God, condemning David's awful sin. Finally, after he finishes in verse 12, where he closes, where Nathan closes by saying, For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. And now Psalm 51. <clears throat> to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise for thou desirest not sacrifice else would I give it thou delightest not in burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit 
a broken and a contrite heart, O God, Thou wilt not despise. Do good in Thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build Thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt Thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon Thine altar. Amen. Now we have spent eight messages considering the Bible's testimony to the doctrine of repentance. In God's mercy to us, He has recorded what true repentance looks like in the example of King David. So this psalm is an illustration of true repentance for God's children throughout the ages. Whenever we are unclear about repentance, whenever we're not sure we have a heart of repentance, if we would examine whether or not our repentance is real, we don't have to sit around and wring our hands. We don't have to sit and wonder. We don't have to go and ply other men to tell us what real repentance is like. Brethren, God in His mercy opens wide David's heart. And he sets it before us in this passage in unmistakable terms. The language is as clear and plain as it could possibly be. And whether we use words like this or not, whether we uh, think we sound as beautiful as the English of the King James sounds, that's not the issue. The issue is the heart and what comes from it. Here we have the heart of repentance open wide and declaring before God confession of sin and a plea for cleansing. While King David's repentance is not an example of a sinner looking to Christ for the first time for everlasting life, it is the supreme scriptural example of all that can be said about heartfelt repentance. Though David comes as a child of God to his God, confessing and repenting of his sin. The sinner who comes to Christ for the first time comes no less penitent. David certainly knew and understood things that uh, a sinner who did not know, does not know the living God may not understand clearly. But he will understand the basic issues that David sets before us here. Psalm 51 has been called a penitential psalm. To be penitent means to feel a sense of guilt and express regret and sorrow for sin. We live in a day and age and we unfortunately live in a culturized Christianity that shies away 
from the notion of sorrow over sin. And yet, O oh brethren, we will never truly exult in the joys of our God and of His saving grace unless we've been brought by His Spirit to see our lostness. David is deeply aware of his guilt. He's deeply aware of his shame. And having offended his holy, faithful covenant God, he's aware of his desperate need of God's grace and pardon. The Scripture has revealed to us in our studies that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. David's psalm of repentance, his penitential psalm here, lays these things out for us with clarity and profundity. Well, the title of this message is Cleanse Me From My Sin. And we will consider it under these two heads. Number one, David's change of mind. And number two, David's change of behavior. We will see, God willing, that all that we've talked about in these eight messages on repentance are... Uh, all these things are illustrated in David's psalm. And it easily unfolds into his change of mind and his change of behavior. So this is how we will approach this precious psalm. So let's take up God being our helper, David's change of mind. Now remember, this is a psalm. This is not just a chapter in the Bible. This is a song. Why in the world would one of the grossest sins in the Bible be the subject of a song? In our day, we just want to sing happy little ditties. Why in the world would you want to sing about a horrible sin that ends in a man's murder? Is that the kind of singing we want to teach our children? Yes. The Scriptures tell us that we're to teach and admonish one another. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The, the psalms embody virtually every aspect of the heart and of spiritual life. Not only the joys and the exaltation of God, the glory of our God and His majesty, but the very depths of sin and what sin brings and what sin does. And we have instruction set before us. The nation of Israel saying this. And His people throughout the ages still do. Because brethren, there's not one of us in this room that is not capable of David's sin 
and worse. If you sit there thinking, well, I'd never do the kind of thing David did. I mean, I might be kind of bad, but I wouldn't do what he did. I would have to say you haven't been well instructed by the Word of God. This book teaches us that, brethren, any one of us is capable of the grossest and the deepest sins. So, we have before us a song of instruction and we want to learn from it this morning. God has illustrated for us in a somber, in a sober song the horror of sin and yet the glory and the beauty of God's forgiving grace. It doesn't end on the note of sorrow and remorse. It ends with praise to God. So, how did David's change of mind then come to pass? This one recorded for us in this song. Well, the first thing we want to do is look at verses 1 and 2, where we find David's cry for pardon. David's cry for pardon from sin. Now, our studies uh, in God's Word have revealed that repentance is a change of mind about sin, about self, and about God. And we see all three of these elements clearly articulated in David's cry for pardon. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God! Well, your average individual doesn't cry out to mercy from God. The average individual today isn't concerned that he's bothered God or upset God or troubled God. He doesn't think of a God of judgment, a God of justice, a God of unspeakable holiness. He thinks of a kind of a Santa Claus up there in the sky who is just up there, the great psychologist, the great big sugar daddy in heaven who's happy to do whatever he can. He just loves everybody. He loves everybody the same way. And he's just hopeful that some of them will listen to what he's got to say when they can make the time. Brethren, that's not the God of the Bible. If men understood the God of the Bible, if they knew and understood that not only is He love, but that He is infinite holiness and purity and righteousness, when that comes into their heart, when the light of God's Word and the power of His Spirit opens a man's heart to understand that, then he sees what he is and he cries out to God for mercy. David is crying out for mercy because he understands who God is and he understands himself in the light of that holy God. He sees his sin. And while Bathsheba looked so good, and while he couldn't wait to have the men bring her back, while he couldn't wait for those few moments of earthly satisfaction, 
He saw his sin for what it was. And he cried out to God, Have mercy upon me, O God. There's a change of mind about his sin. There's a change of mind about himself. He felt quite confident doing what he did. He didn't stop his wicked course. He said, who is that? Who is that? Who's that woman? And he'll know who she is? And men know something about that. You women may be sitting here unaware of the way men think. And I hope that your husband will biblically inform you. And I hope that you fathers will biblically, graciously, kindly, in the right way and in the right time, but definitely teach your daughters how godless men think and how even godly men can think as David's psalm proves. Who is that? She was beautiful to look upon. I want to know who she is. And they came back with the answer. That's Uriah's wife. And he didn't stop. A brethren, right there, the Lord set before him a warning. This is another man's wife. But he went right on with his proud seeking, with his proud lust. Bring her to me. But he's not saying that now. He's had a change of mind about himself and his prideful lust. Have mercy. Upon me, O God. And he's had a change about God. He's changed his mind about his God. He forgot who he was serving. And when that sin was brought home to his heart, he remembered who God was. In David's psalm here, he makes no plea about his righteousness. In some of his other psalms, he says, Lord, remember my righteousness. Remember the good things I've done. But he's not doing that here. He says, have mercy upon me, O God. Brethren, repentance is a change of mind about sin and self and God. Have you ever tasted anything of that? I'm not fashioning a particular experience here for you. I'm simply asking you, have you ever changed your mind about your sin, about yourself, and your desperate need for a Savior, and about God, who He really is and what He's really like? You may go ahead and deceive yourself with a God that you've made up, but the only God that saves is the God of Scripture. And you must be certain that you know who he is. David was brought to his senses. And the first cry recorded for us in his psalm is, Have mercy. Have mercy. O God of righteousness. O judge of all justice. O sovereign, holy God. 
have mercy upon me. Smitten by Nathan's word from God and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, David cries out in the agony of his soul for forgiveness. This isn't just a little, oh well, you know, God's a God of mercy, He's a God who forgives, and so, yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes, so, uh, you know, sorry, I'll try to do better next time. I mean, that's, that's, that almost captures much of modern Christian, Christian thinking. Well, you know, it's all about grace. I mean, you know, let's, let's, don't talk about all this stuff about, you know, tears and crying. That's, that's that old religion. We're in the dispensation of grace right now, right? Well, yes, we are under the dispensation of grace. But God has always been gracious. The God of the old covenant is a God of grace and mercy and revealed Himself to be so. Brethren, His holiness never changes. And even though we are His children, our sins still are offensive. David has seen the filth of his sin. David has seen his own wickedness. And David has seen the holiness of his God. Have mercy upon me, O God. And brethren, this is godly sorrow. We spent several weeks looking at Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians where he manifests for us in that, that amazing list in 2 Corinthians 7 of the fruits of repentance. We have it illustrated for us here. The Scriptures interpret themselves. Would you know what godly sorrow looks like? Would you know what sorrow after a godly sort sounds like? God doesn't want you sitting over there guessing. He tells you by David, Have mercy upon me, O God. Here is the godly sorrow that leads into repentance not to be repented of. Well, that brings us to his confession. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, is his cry. And then he says, four, verse three, is tied to his cry for forgiveness. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, he says in these verses. And here David is acknowledging, he's owning his sin. This is what confession means. Confession isn't telling God something that He doesn't know. It's not informing God. One of the precious memories I have of someone praying in my presence, calling on God to save Him, this was the first time I'd ever seen this. And it was a precious and it was a sweet prayer. And it was a heartfelt prayer. It's a, the grammar wasn't good. It didn't sound like King James English. It was patched together 
with the sorrow of a broken heart. But in the midst of it, he started off by saying, uh, God, this is, and he gave his name. And he said, uh, I've been doing this and I've been doing that. And you could tell by the way he was saying it. It was as if he were coming and informing God. As if God didn't really know. God knew. God always knows all our sins. Confession isn't informing. It is agreeing with God. It is acknowledging that what God says is true. The, the word in Greek for confession, we have it in 1 John. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That particular word means to speak the same thing, literally. In other words, if God has said it is sin, we're brought to that place where we say, yes, I acknowledge that. I've done this. And it is sin. It is agreeing with God. Admitting that we have broken His law. As a member of God's covenant people, David well knew the seventh commandment. David wasn't some uninformed fellow off the street walking around in, in Jerusalem. He knew what the Word of God said. Thou shalt not commit adultery. More importantly, the kings of Israel were to write out a copy of the law by hand. And many of us are unaware of that. But the king of Israel had to sit down and write out a copy of God's law. That's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 17. It says, And it shall be when he, meaning the king, sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests of the Levites. Before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. And that's why the Psalms so often mention, Oh, how love I thy law. I meditate in thy law. This is what David was commanded to do. This is what he had to do to be a righteous and a just king. He didn't simply know that the seventh commandment existed. It was the law of God that was to inform His rule. Deuteronomy goes on to say, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. He was to be the example of walking in God's law for God's people. Remember, God chose a man after His own heart that would walk in His ways. And what do we find? We, in, in this 
Deuteronomy passage, it goes on to say that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. Brethren, this is almost prophetic of David and his sin with Bathsheba. His heart was lifted up. This is one of your men, one of your best men's wife. Bring her to me. His heart was lifted up above his brethren. I'm the king. Go get her. When I read this, my heart is always so pierced. Because brethren, David knew the Scriptures. This is what makes his sin here so grievous. This was not a man acting in ignorance. This was to be a man who meditated in and modeled the law of God. And then he uses his position. Bring that woman to me. I don't care whose wife she is. Bring her here. To the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This is one of the reasons Nathan said to them, You won't die. God's put your sin away. You won't die. What he did deserved the death penalty. The seventh, the, the seventh commandment required the death penalty. Tragically, David followed the impulse of his flesh. Men understand. Women understand this. It's so easy to know what's true and yet look it right in the face and go against what God says. One of the first spankings that my daughter got it was a little bitty thing, just learning to walk. And she had pulled herself up, as children do. They, once they're at that stage, they pull themselves up on things and walk around. She pulled herself up on a, a chest that we kept in our living room at that time. And my wife kept a, a, a very large flower pot with a, a very pretty plant in it, filled with nice black dirt, the kind that you, that potting soil. Well, she had, my daughter had pulled herself up and, and walked right over to that pot and put her hands on it and pulled it right over onto the carpet and potting soil went all over and very deeply into the, the carpet and uh, she had been corrected and told not to do that again. Well, <clears throat> One afternoon, I happened to be walking in to the living room just as she was about to put her hand on that pot again. She had pulled herself up, and she just about had her pot, hand on that pot. And I just stood there for a moment, quietly watching to see if she'd do it. And it was almost as if she could feel my presence. And she turned around, and she started... And then she got a nice big smile on her face and looked at me. 
just the nicest, prettiest little old baby little girl smile. And then while she was smiling at me, her hand went like this. And she slowly moved it up toward the flower pot. And as soon as her hand got on it, she was disciplined. But she knew. It was as clear as it could be. And she could even lie with her smile. I'm not really doing anything all that bad. And her hand went right up. It is our nature, brethren, to stare righteousness and law in the face and do what we want to do. Right. Now, children, you know that, don't you? All you children that can understand, you know that mom and daddy have told you things before. And you knew that mom and daddy said, don't do that. And if you do that, you're going to get punished. And if they love you, when you did that, they punished you. They disciplined you. And you knew that what you had done was wrong. If you don't like the word punish, you can just stay with the word discipline. But either way, you disciplined your children. They can look right in the face of what is right and wrong and do what they will. And we don't change from that in nature, friends. And the worst part of it is when we embrace religion and we make a show of our religion and yet we do the same thing before God. We know what His Word says and we go right to our sin. As if God weren't even there. As if He weren't standing behind us like I was standing right there behind my daughter. Brethren, David is confessing his sin not as a man who for the first time came to understand that adultery was wrong but as a man who had written out by hand what the law of God was, by a man who knew that that could be punished by death, and as king of God's covenant people, he said, bring her to me. Don't start in horror, brethren, as if you're not capable. There's not a sin we've committed that sooner or later we didn't realize clearly was against what God says. Yes, there are sins of ignorance. There are sins of ignorance. But even when we've been informed, this is evil, this is wicked, we go, yes, amen, that's bad, that's terrible. Don't want it in my house, don't want it in my children. And then that moment comes when no one's around, and that sin stands right before us. And it just doesn't look all that bad. It just doesn't look damning. It just doesn't look terrible, corrupt, perverse, filthy. And we pursue it. David confesses. He doesn't put he doesn't blame anyone else. He knows what is sinful. And brethren, 
he says to his God, I acknowledge my transgressions. There was no argument. He didn't plead for his righteousness. I saw her. I wanted her. I found out who she was. I had her brought to me. And when she was with child, I did every scheme that I could think of to get her husband back from the war so that the child could be claimed as his. And that didn't work. So I had him killed. These are not light words, brethren. The Lord doesn't give us extensive graphic detail, but He gives us enough. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we know the story and we know what He means when He says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The word cleanse here, we, we, we think of washing today and we think of washing machines and things like that, but very often back then they would have to take clothing, they'd take it down to a stream or to a river and they would, they would beat it, grind it upon a rock. Try to get that old heavy dirt out to get it loosened up. This is the word that he's using. It's ingrained in me. It's deep in me. It stains and corrupts me. Get it out. This is what he's crying out to God. I acknowledge my transgression, my adultery, and my murder. My sin is ever before me. Brethren, when the Spirit of God brings your sin home to your heart, you can't get away from it. Now, if you just feel guilty for a while, you can go put that voice off. You can go drink it away. You can go drug it away. You can go play tennis till you don't think about it. You can find all kinds of diversions. You can, you can shake off guilty feelings. But when the Spirit of God is dealing with you, He comes back to that heart over and over and brings that sin until you deal with God. God doesn't leave His children in sin. David said, My sin is ever before me. Brethren, can you think about it? Can, I mean, let that trickle deep down and think about David's situation. When he would lie down at night, do you think it went through his mind when he stood there looking at that woman from his rooftop? How many times do you think that scene went through his head? How many times do you think he heard his own words? Who is that? Who is that? Uriah's wife. Bring her to me. How many times do you think that went through his heart? My sin is ever before me. A constant companion. I can't seem to get rid of it. But this is a heart of anguish. This is not poetry. My sin is ever before me. I see her face. I see his face. I remember writing that letter to Joab. Put him up in the front. So that he's killed. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.